Welcome to the Dakota Town Hall Podcast, a political podcast platform based in Western South Dakota. Over the coming episodes, you'll hear from candidates and the issues that affect you in the upcoming 2020 election. Welcome back to the Dakota Town Hall Podcast, brought to you by Home Slice Media Group and uh, sponsored by Elevate Rapid City. We are burning through the uh, candidate interviews this week, and I'm pleased to introduce our first libertarian candidate, uh, Mr. Gideon Oaks. Please introduce yourself. All right. Hey, thanks so much for having me here. Uh, by way of introduction, I'm a fourth generation South Dakotan, but most importantly, I'm a husband and a father. My wife, Mary, and I have two kids. I work as a real estate broker associate, uh, graphic designer, and landlord. Try not to get tied down to one thing too often, <laughs> too much here. Uh, previously, my wife and I owned and operated Teddy's Deli, a sandwich and coffee shop up in Keystone. Um, so I like to say that after keeping 15 to 20 high school and college students on task and busy for almost a decade all summer long, uh, lobbyists, bureaucrats, politicians, they don't really scare me. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, like I said, I'm a fourth-generation South Dakotan. My great-grandfather namesake, C.C. Uh, Gideon, helped Senator Peter Norbeck lay out Iron Mountain Road. Uh, he designed the Pigtail Bridges. He built and operated the State Game Lodge. He designed Guts and Borglum's first artist studio. He was the first private I didn't know these things. Yep, all those good things. Uh, so I have a 102-year vested interest in making sure our area and our state continue to thrive. That's a pretty good opening statement as far <laughs> as these go. That's pretty fascinating. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I, we start with a bit of a general, why are you running? And then we're going to get into some specific issues here. Sure. I uh, Just very generally, uh, you know, I'm running right now because more than ever, we need unity rather than division. Um, I say that because political dialogue in our country has just hit an absolute all-time low. It's dis absolutely devolved into constant yelling, demonizing of people, and in, in many cases, just sheer hatred of our neighbors over their political beliefs. And uh, don't get me wrong, disagreement is not a bad thing on its own. It's, we don't need to disagree less, we need to disagree better. Healthier. Healthier, that's yeah. a great way to put it, absolutely. And we, we, in general, we just have to get back to work and solve problems, not as Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians, but as South Dakotans. You know, that was, we did, uh, we interviewed Dusty last week, um, and that, and I don't mean to give him a plug in this, but like, he had a great line that way too. You know, there are people who want to win, there are people who want to solve problems. Yep, absolutely. It's a great way to put it. Dusty's a, a longtime friend of mine. I, he and Uri are just both great people. And so whoever comes out of that race, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them. They're, sure. they're both great guys. Well, let's get into some specific issues that people care about here. Um, Gideon is running for District 30, um, that, which is, the, if for those of you that are kind of political junkies and want to pay attention, that is uh, Custer, Edgemont, Hill City, Hot Springs, a little bit of Pennington County. Right. It, it's huge. It's basically everything outside of Rapid City and Bob yeah. Selder. Uh, it goes from Mystic and Rochford up in that part of the world all the way, makes a little smiley face around Rapid City, <laughs> picks up again out just east of Box Elder, gets New Underwood, Wasta Wall, drops down to the corner of the reservation, picks up at the corner of the state, and then back up. So it's it's literally the size of Connecticut. Is it really? It is. I didn't know that. Yeah. District 30 Just is about 6,000 square miles. Okay. Yeah, it's huge. It's got to be, is it the biggest geographical district? It's not. It's not. I believe 29. Uh, 20, that one's big too, but I think 28 up 28, in the northwest corner of the state. Makes sense. They, I mean, they split that into 28A and 28B. Right. So it's you got to know it's pretty big. That is interesting. Okay, very good. Let's get to some specifics here. Sure. Let's let's cover. Uh, let's just get, cover some of the main topics here. So, 
What do you want people to know about your position on the Second Amendment? Well, uh, I'm I'm pro Constitution. You know, I'm I'm a libertarian, and we believe in the entire Constitution, uh, including the Second Amendment. You know, firearm rights are are tantamount. You know, a lot of people are fond of saying that the Second Amendment is how we keep the First Amendment, and I tend to agree with that statement. Um, you know, there's there's absolutely some people in this world who should not own guns, but that needs to be left not to the state. That's not the role of government to decide exactly who those people are and who those people aren't. Uh, Let's move to then a topic such as, let's talk about COVID. So like, what's what? here's how I've been asking this. What do you think the state's been doing correctly on COVID? And then what would you maybe change? Sure. Um, somebody asked me recently to give give the state or give Governor Nome a, a letter grade sure. on that, and I had to say that I would give her a strong B on that. And here's why: uh, leadership comes down to more than just good policy. It comes down to policy and communication and, and the messaging with which you put forth the policy. Policy was spot on. You know, the state did things perfectly in letting. I shouldn't say perfectly, but very well, uh, in letting municipalities decide for themselves what actions they were going to take. Because what works in Sioux Falls and what works in Rapid City is not going to work in downtown Edgemont, South Dakota. Right. You know, that's they're just two different worlds, and they need to have the autonomy to be able to make their own flex and make their own decisions like that. What I haven't really necessarily liked is the the messaging that's gone along with it. You know, the governor has done a very good job of using her good decision to promote herself on things. But, you know, it's not, I, I don't know. To me, that's that's like me if I was if I based my entire campaign for state senate on the time that I voted against a, a bridge in Keystone that is still <laughs> sitting out in a field rusting eight years later. You know, it's sure. one good decision does not an entire campaign make. And so that's, to me, and also things like uh, when we were having the fireworks in Mount Rushmore, she came out and said, we're going to have these and we're not going to social distance. You know, just little things like that. It, it seems kind of self-defeating to the whole point of trying to battle this. And it seems to undermine the actual seriousness of the issue. So that's the only re- thing I, I would do differently in her shoes. And, you know, well, overall, and I think a, she's done very well. It's a, and it's a real nuanced question and answer. And, it, and, it's a, and it's, you know, social media has made COVID a real dangerous weaponized topic. It is. And that's that's so unfortunate. You know, like I was saying in my introductory statement, you know, political dialogue has just become so, so terribly divided. And, you know, me, I, I face it all the time because I'm running as a third party. I'm running to be this the first third party legislator in South Dakota history. There's never been another candidate other than Democratic Republican? There have been a couple who have run as independents, but they switched in. Uh, the most recent was Jenna Netherton. Okay, sure. Northeast corner of the state. She ran as an independent and then switched right over to Republican. So we must have had some like, well, let's see, the Whig party would have been done <laughs> yeah, by our territorial did. days. By the way, I do have one Whig in my district. You yeah. have an actual Whig? Yeah, but it's not a recognized party, but he put other and put Whig down. As no party, way, so really. There's I kind of want to reach out to him and no see kidding. if there might be some, you know, uh, back and forth benefits we can find here. I want to interview this person. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll see if I can get you his interview uh, contact That's information. That's fantastic. <laughs> you don't see a lot of Whigs running around No, anymore. exactly right. But like I said, you know, I, I see the divisiveness. And my objective as a third-party legislator is not to be another layer of division. 
It's, it's to give honest consideration to each bill that's not guided by the existing layers of division that we have, i.e. parties or interest groups and sure. that, that sort of thing. And, well, you and, know, I guess I can ask you this question specifically to mm-hmm. you, and I, and I would, and, and like, I'm, we're hoping, obviously, to interview your opponent as well, and I, I feel like I could even frame this question to her a bit. You're a third-party candidate libertarian, so what would your message be to Republicans and Democrats separately? Sure. Well, before I, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, before I get to what I would say separately to them, let me let me just say what I would say to them together. Sure, maybe it's a together answer. It, it, it for me it is. You know, I'm I'm not going to appear to be a fly in the ointment. I'm I'm going to be the ointment. You know, there's there's too much red versus blue going on, and not what's not enough what's good for our state. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with being principled. Everybody should have principles. It, it but it becomes a problem when you think that. Everyone who doesn't share your exact set of principles is evil, and that's one of the big differentiations between my opponent and myself. Okay. Um, Let's go into some more ballot issues here, or maybe just state issues. Um, We've got three ballot measures this year in November, two of which are related to cannabis. So let's talk about initiated measure 26, which is legalizing marijuana for medical use, and then constitutional amendment A, which is for just full uh, legalized recreational use. Sure. Uh, I mean, I I can give you a straight across the board answer on on both of them. I I will be voting yes on both of them. I'm a lot more... I haven't made marijuana a, a core of my campaign. I guess I'm not your typical libertarian on that. It's not— uh, Most libertarians are so for it, it, it <laughs> to the point of almost unreasonableness, I would say. Well, and I, libertarians know. believe that government's role should not be to make personal decisions for people. And marijuana happens to be one of those personal in decisions. In the personal decision a lot, of, a lot of libertarians you know, kind of focus on that because it's here and it's in our face about that. You know, It's, it's not sexy to talk about any other decisions really uh, other than that. And so right. that's, that gets focused on a lot. I haven't made it a core uh, component of my campaign. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I, I'm for them. I'll be voting yes on them, but it, it doesn't impact me directly. You know, I, I don't smoke. I don't partake in those. I, I don't drink either, for that matter. So it, it doesn't affect me, but I still believe that the government should not have a role in making those decisions for the individual. So that's a purely libertarian argument to that question. That's the first answer I've gotten that. A lot of people kind of want to duck it a little bit. I do appreciate that you're taking a position well, on it one way or the I'll, other. I'll go a little bit further on it. Um, I, I'm more excited, if you will, about I am 26 than I am about Amendment Day. I am too. Uh, mostly because uh, I, I don't like to amend the Constitution. That's my problem for with it. social issues. Yeah. Um, I, well, I don't like I just willy-nilly amending Constitution uh, you know, social issue otherwise, I think, is a dangerous precedent to set. Exactly, exactly. But, I, you know, at, sometimes you got to go through the door. It's open with you as well. Yeah, if, if that's what it takes to pass this and to set the precedent of individuals making their own decisions, then I, I'm for it, obviously. Um, what about, let's do Constitutional Amendment B. This mm-hmm. legalizes sports betting in Deadwood and on-reservation tribal casinos. Do you have a, you have a swing one way or the other on that one? Uh, same same thing, you know. I don't believe the government should be prohibiting businesses from operating in the ways that they want to, and so I have no problem with legalizing that, and I'll be voting yes on B as well. Um, you know, I have the same concerns with constitutional amendment on that one, but um, that one seems to resonate a lot differently 
right. to the public. And this kind of goes to prove my point on A as well. You know, with B, here we are this many years later after the UBET committee was able to get gambling legalized in the first place. That had to go through a constitutional amendment yep. to have that happen. And now, would we want to... Right, yeah. Uh, was it 89? 89, 88 maybe? Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, but this many years later, when we want to change something on that, we have to go back and amend the constitution to do that. And right. it requires all this. You know, it seems to me like that might have been more simply done through an initiated measure, you know, make things legal. Well, these issues that have traditionally been, you know, uh, socially unpopular, they, you know, that uh, historically, and I, don't, I guess I don't know this, I think this, constitutional amendments get the change to actually finally happen. Because right. it's been I am after I am after I am, and they, you know. That is true. You know, the, the legislature doesn't get to mess with constitutional amendments. If something's not popular with them and the people pass it, the, the, the people, people pass it. it. Um, okay, let's get out of ballot issues. Let's go back. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I can feel that one coming. <laughs> no, take all the time you need, man. <clears throat> okay. So according to a 2019 report published in the U.S. News and World Report, South Dakota ranked number 10 in the nation for higher education, but 23rd in the nation for K-12. through Not as a gotcha statement against the state by any means, but what's, what's the role of the South Dakota legislature to get that number higher than 23rd? Yeah. I mean, middle of the road is not where you aspire to be, but it's, it's sure better than where we could be. On that, um, as far as education goes, you know, I have a very, I guess you could say, unique perspective on education. I was homeschooled through the fourth grade. I attended a private Christian school from there through sixth grade. Went to Catholic school through from my freshman year. I did independent study my sophomore year, and then I ended up graduating from Stevens High School. And so, um, then for my undergrad, I, I did half of my undergrad at a private university, and then I graduated from a public land grant university. So, what I know. For our kids, and this isn't exactly what you asked, uh, and I'll, I'll try to get back to the specific question there, but generally what I know about education is that one-size-fits-all education seems to be what's holding America's children back. And I think even teachers would tell you that. You know, we, we try and we, we probably fail at focusing on individual education, and I'm, I'm hoping technology is going to help us start to keep up with that demand. Um, I, cause like I said, I know teachers, if they had their way, every kid would get every bit of individual attention they need, but every child is different. Every community is different. And so I believe that, uh, educational options should be available to fit the needs of each child and, you know, fit the needs of every situation for the child and that teachers, parents, and students should be able to make their own choices there. So that's less of a, that's, that's, I'm sorry. I feel like I need a follow up. That's, sure. that's. So that would be try to try to hone in your position a little bit to try to get a more specific answer. I would ask. So you would be probably against things Common Core and and these things that are a little one size fits all. I would. You know, if if they are good recommendations and states decide to adopt those, then great. You know, but when they start coming with mandates from the federal government, that seems to be where the problem is. Um, to the specific question of education funding, I, I'm probably a little bit different than many libertarians and probably in, in most conservatives in this regard. So as a state, we've decided that public education is one of the things that we are going to use our collective tax money to fund, rightly so. And if we're going to do that, we need to make sure that education is properly funded, you know, that teachers are 
able to be the professionals we need them to be. Sure. Or certainly we ask them to be. Well, and then in 2020, this is, I mean, find me an, find me an area of business or government that doesn't have a giant wrench thrown in it right now. Right. Exactly. You know, any industry right now, um, one thing holds true for them and that's that the best way to keep good people is to assure them a competitive wage. You know, teachers don't go into teaching for the money, but uh, sadly many are forced to leave because of it. Okay. Um, let's move to, as long as we're on money, let's talk about a general economy. I asked this question specifically this way. Where's the lowest hanging fruit for improvement of our state economy right now? The lowest hanging fruit for me, this is nothing that necessarily is going to be done through the legislature, but it's going to be done through the free market. And so the legislature's role in that, of course... I'm going to give the stereotypical libertarian answer, sure. that's let the market work. Um, I see something amazing happening with technology right now. Uh, we are, I don't want to plug just one business on here, but I'm going to, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk has just launched Starlink. Mm-hmm. Starlink is launching all of these low elevation, low latency satellites, which you know, for the non-nerdy in the group, I, I'm pretty nerdy here myself. And so what low latency means is your connection to this, it's going to be up in the sky, but it's going to be, it's going to connect a lot quicker than traditional satellite connections have. You know, anytime you have to send a beam from Earth up to space and then back in the form of data, it takes a while. So exactly. Um, dropping the birds down as low as they are doing and having this big field of them is going to bring broadband to an amazing cross-section of the country, including rural areas like South Dakota. Certainly District 30. Especially District 30. Where I have said many (laughs) times, I can't get my cell phone to work down here. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, cell phone. And yeah, try to get a good DSL connection down there too. I, I, I work from home right now, of course, during COVID and it's, it's tough sometimes getting a good connection. But what that's going to do is you know, what COVID has brought in is the now expectations of work from home positions. Yeah. And what Starlink is going to do for South Dakota, especially, and for rural areas like ours, is open up the workforce to either gain employment with these companies that they that were out of reach for them before, or start their own firms. Sure. This is going to open up a whole new field of economic development for us, and that's what I'm most excited about. So that's the lowest hanging fruit for me. So let's bring it down to maybe a District 30 version of this question. So like District 30, and I'm guessing here, you might be able to tell me, I would imagine the the employment opportunities and the industries that 30 is in is obviously, you know, production agriculture is going to be up there. Tourism is going to be up there. Um, healthcare is going to be up there and then maybe military would be the top four, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, given our proximity to guard bases and Ellsworth. Um, anything in those specific silos of industries that you feel particularly something needs to be updated, changed, improved, brought back? Well, I, I can tell you in ag right now, um, that's actually one of my passionate spots is, is food freedom. That's, that's one of my top priorities. Um, if, and when I get to peer, uh, food freedom is going to be my, probably number one priority to introduce. Um, I think we need to follow Wyoming's lead on their food freedom. A lot of people that aren't in ag don't really realize the crisis that our men and women in agriculture are going through right now, especially in in beef. They know when 
things like COVID hit and they can't get things out of the store, that that affects them directly. But sure. they don't see the ongoing crisis that our that our farmers and ranchers are going through. And one of the big factors in that is the near monopoly that four major packers have on the ag uh, in the beef industry. Just four companies. You know, when when Teddy Roosevelt broke up the monopolies at the beginning of the last century, there were six major packers. Uh, ironically enough, mostly just they're the same companies that were <laughs> broken up in the 1900s by <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt with different names now, if you trace the trace yeah, that a little back. Bit. But they had about 50% of the market, and that's that was enough for him to break up the monopolies at that point. And now four, four companies, companies have, have about 85, 90% of the market. Yeah. And uh, what they're able to do. more than just this country, too. Exactly. Well, and two of them are Brazilian-owned. Yeah. You know, they they have the ability to come to our farmers and say, well, this is the wage we're going to give you, or this is the rate we're going to give you for your beef, or we're just going to start shipping in cattle from Brazil here. And what we've what we've done is when we lost mandatory country of origin labeling is we've allowed that to happen. You know, something can come into the country. So I would assume then you're for cool. For cool, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Cool for those of you who don't know, if those of you city folk listening, <laughs> uh, country of origin labeling is a big uh, debate right now in both in the political world and the in the beef industry world on the packer side on the producer side. It's a you know and the, and in South Dakota specifically, you know, we've got our calf debates and we've got you know it's a never ending kind of political deal. There's certainly information on both sides of it. Um, that that you can read on, uh, but generally speaking, I think most politicians are for country of origin labeling. It seems to be uh, a lot out at here. At least out here. Yeah, at least at the local level, yeah. they are. When you start getting to the federal level, there's a lot more corporate influence that goes on there. Sure. And all of a sudden, people start to be a little less for that. Uh, so between COOL, uh, MCOOL, and uh, the PRIME Act at the federal level, those are things, uh, I won't go into the PRIME Act, but essentially it lets states... It deregulates a little bit and allows states to have their own regulations on their uh, beef processing plants. Well, that'd be a super easy thing this state could do. I mean, I know we're just hammering on this for a while, but like... Um, it's important, though. It's important. And th- and this is less necessarily learning about you and just two guys talking about this, right? Like, there are things you can do inside of our state to make some things that where, the, where state inspections can speed a lot of this up and do a lot of farm-to-table stuff and do a lot of farmer's market type stuff, sell direct-to-consumer stuff. And right. when you have to get the – and this is not me endorsing a libertarian platform necessarily, <laughs> although it maybe sounds like it right now. Adding in all of these USDA complications about inspections makes it – and then interstate shipping and the whole thing. That really does complicate it quite a bit. Um, and I guess I mean that as a lawyer for both sides, but I, I do like that all all politicians at least are talking about it. Right. It's know? something that needs to be talked about. And the action that we should be taking on this, Wyoming just passed this year uh, an act to expand uh, beef parts essentially being sold. Yep. Uh, in South Dakota right now, you can go in with anybody you want to on a cow, skip the F- the USDA uh, inspection process, and have a custom processed cow for you. And you know, you get a quarter, and have a friend of yours get a quarter, and yep. another friend get a half if they want to. Uh, but Wyoming, what they've done now is they've now legalized going in on a cow with you know ten people. as many people as you want to, and buying parts of the animal down to the smallest, you know, down to 10 pounds of ground beef. Yep. You buy this part and all of a sudden, you know, that's, that's your part of the animal. And by doing that, you can skip the USDA processing requirements on there. And, you know, a lot of people are going to look at that and be like, Ooh, why would I want to buy something that's not USDA inspected? Well, you have to realize that the USDA inspection process on that is a huge barrier to entry 
uh, for smaller processors to get into. When you, I, we don't have time to talk about the entire nuance of this, but when you're USDA regulated on this, you have to have an office for your inspector. They have to have their own break room, their own bathroom. They have to be on the floor mm-hmm. every second that you're cutting out there. Nobody is looking to sell bad product. Well, and it's one of the things I like. I'm that's. I'm glad you brought that up. Like USDA inspections are a good thing. This sounds like we're just two dudes who are completely against the USDA. Right, that's right. not necessarily my end of this deal. Um, my point would be. One of the things we noticed, and maybe we didn't notice it until a year like this year, although we should, we've had a lot of opportunities to see years like this in the ag production sector, it is we need speed. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to not we. I don't raise ten cattle. I don't. I don't know anything about raising cattle. No, but, but like, you eat it. The, I eat it, and yeah. I love it. And the industry needs to be able to go. Oh, like, in the, I know more about hogs than I do about beef, right? So, in all the hog producers the east side of the state, they were killing a ton of hogs, hundreds of head. If they would have had an a process to where they could do the same thing with hogs as they do with beef and a law like Wyoming, they could have not sold all of them. They still probably would have had to slaughter without killing any, a lot of them, the majority of them, but they could have at least then taken some of that herd and, and monetized it Mm -hmm. quickly. Right. And that, and, and you couldn't, I mean, you know, you could have, you could have had a remote slaughterhouse in the state made a bajillion dollars, but you couldn't, the laws are in place where you just couldn't move that fast. I and we're spending well, a lot of time on we, this. We right? are. But one last note on that is that that is it, – it's actually more than just good economics on this. It's it's tantamount to our food safety and food security for us. You know, COVID showed us with the Smithfield example. Sure. I'm glad you brought that up. That one – you know, putting all your apples in one bunch there, or in this case, putting all your hogs in one plant – was really a bad idea. We we lost that one plant to COVID and almost double digits percentages of our national pork product went with it. You know, that's that's scary to me. And that's why we need to divest that out in a little bit and help our local co-ops and local producers get a foot up. You know, I'm not out to penalize the big four packers for being successful on that. I'm trying to reduce the barriers to entry for the smaller guys to actually compete and help our ranchers out. That is a great way. Actually, that's a much better way to put it. And I think that's something, you know, this is something that I think most people sitting in your chair talking to us would largely agree with. I would hope so. Okay. So as long, let's move on from the cat. We've done a lot on ag production. Let's move on. So let's talk about budget, state budgets. And I asked this question kind of specifically. There's been a law passed where Gideon is in charge of the budget. Okay. (laughs) Who benefits and who not benefits? I think that's a wrong way to put it. Who gets what gets more, what gets less? So what you're saying is we just passed a law, the libertarians take over everything. The libertarians (laughs) in in the in the in a strange turn of events, Christy Noam hands that you the checkbook. Got it. Well, we, we always joke, you know, what's the first thing that's gonna happen when the libertarians take over? Well, it's we're gonna leave everybody alone. So, I mean, obviously, the, the easiest answer on that is the people. The people are who get the money back. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the strongest possible opponent to a state income tax. And I know that wasn't necessarily the question on there. But, sure. you know, it got brought up a couple of years ago. Um, back when I was running in 2018, it was, it was definitely at the forefront. People were ringing that up. And, yep. you know, let's be clear on that. Income taxes are not a means of growing a state's economy. But they're a last-ditch effort to keep a state from going bankrupt after it's overspent its resources. Um, to me, the best way to keep our state's economy healthy is for is to be kind of what we've been doing is to be a haven for companies that want to do business. It's not, it's simply not good economic policy to tax and penalize those people who have been successful. You know, if you want something 
if you want less of something, you tax and you regulate it. If you want more of something, you get the government out of it. So who gets the checks written to them? The people would be the the ones I would give it back to. Um, you know, businesses are attracted to South Dakota because of our lack of both personal income tax and sure. corporate income tax. Sure. And, you know, you one need only look at our state, not just in our district, but around the state to see examples of this. You know, we've got First Premier Bank, Sanford, Avera, Black Hills Corp, Dactronics, you know, these big companies, the list goes on and on. And for a while, I, I had the fortune of being employed by one of the really uh, a great company based here in South Dakota. It was started in South Dakota, but at the time I worked for it, it had offices not only up in Mobridge and Rapid City, but also in L.A. and Columbus, Ohio. Um, That's strange. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we're not meeting at the L.A. office. We're meeting in the Mobridge office. Exactly. <laughs> it's a third-party logistics company, and they could hit just about, you know, this is they were Amazon competitors sure. in, in the third-party logistics company, and they could hit just about anywhere in the country as fast as they could from those three strategic locations. It was great. That's um, interesting. But at, at, what my point on that was at any point, at any time, they could have just easily moved out of South Dakota, and in some ways, it probably would have been easier on them logistically rather than trying to fly a plane in each day to Mobridge to pick up the daily shipments, but they chose to stay in South Dakota, both for our reliable workforce and for our business-friendly climate, and that's something that should uh, continue. Let's move on to something that is, um, you know, this is a topic that isn't really, I don't, I think it's a silly question to ask district candidates, but it is a question that gets asked a million times, and it's one of the questions we get asked to ask. So do you want to take a position one way or the other on Medicaid expansion? Yeah, I will take a, a position on that. I, you know, I, I don't want to sound unsympathetic on that. You know, we have a lot of folks who uh, have come to rely on that for for their medical expenses. But to me, I, I think Medicaid expansion is more or less a band aid on a wound that needs stitches. You know, instead of slapping another band aid on, we need to talk about how to close the wound itself, and that. That is, of course, you know, the medical costs that have skyrocketed in the last couple of decades. And, yeah, this is, like you said, it's it's kind of something that doesn't necessarily happen so much at the district level. But And we, we could get into a very granular debate and come up with, you know, between us a couple of probably a dozen varied opinions on why medical costs are so high. But ultimately, I think most of us can agree that they're high because of cronyism in the government. When you have lobbyists that are writing healthcare legislation and having it passed by their, I hate to say it, but bought and paid for representatives and senators at the federal level, the ones who suffer are the average folks like you and me. And it's because of that government involvement that I'm kind of skeptical that more government involvement in healthcare is going to somehow fix the problem. You know, That's we, a real libertarian <laughs> answer, man. You know, the, the the stereotypical way to say that is if I can't if I can't trust the government to deliver a letter on time, how am I going to trust them right. with healthcare or have them <laughs> trust them to decide who lives and who dies? But um, if we want it fixed, let's let's talk about opening up the market to smaller insurance companies to compete with the large ones. You know, just like in ag, the same thing. You know, let don't penalize the big guys. Open up the barriers so the little guys can compete. You know, let's talk about tort reform and reduction in regulations to our on our medical professionals. Uh, they want to get back to treating patients instead of having to hire one more billing office administrator and one more compliance officer for their business. You know, if let's let's compare it to any other industry. If we saw exorbitant prices, we would work to increase competition and allow innovators to do it better. Why not healthcare? Uh, let's go to. Pulling up my list of questions here. 
Why? Let's go to something a little more general. What? So let's let's focus back on District Thirty. What mm -hmm. are the issues in District Thirty that you want to tackle day one in Pier? Well, like I said, you know, day one is going to be the Food Freedom Act and trying to bring a South Dakota version of that Wyoming bill for food freedom on that. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that get brought up to the state legislature that don't need to be brought up. You know, we've got a group of people who push these bills that in, in a lot of cases, unfortunately, they are just, they're lawsuit magnets. You know, that's all they are. And a lot of these bills that come forward that get to be so controversial are ones that are, are kind of um, solutions looking for a problem, if you will. And so yeah, I can tell you what I wouldn't do. You know, I'm not going to be bringing bills like that, like the transgender bill that was brought up last time or, you know, some of these, you know, I, I'm pro-life, but I, I'm not going to be bringing bills that are simply only going to get us serve to get us sued yeah. in court. Um, and so, you know, I, I, one of the top things I want to tackle in, in peer is to bridge the gap. You know, right now, that's something we talked about right at the beginning, you know, with so many people getting so polarized uh, between red and blue. <clears throat> I want to be a bridge, you know, allow, allow the two sides to work together through maybe a, a friendly negotiator in the middle. Like the great, you're the, you're the, you're the great communicator. You yeah. can be the great communicator of South Dakota. Wow. Comparing the libertarian here <laughs> to Ronald Reagan. I, I like how you think. But I was just, yeah. I was just seeing if I get a, get a libertarian <laughs> response to that. Uh, okay. Let's do, uh, this is, this, this question specifically, I care more about for the districts that are a little closer to Rapid City, but given your, uh, geography in Pendleton County, and it certainly affects your people economically of sorts. Uh, the number of homeless people has grown over the years for sure. Um, some feel this is tied to mental health. Um, do, do you want to, do you want to weigh in on any of the, those topics? I don't necessarily have a question, but just the general, A, the homelessness inside of Pennington County is increasing and, sure. and, and B, that seems to be from a lot of experts tied to some things that we can address in the mental health space. Well, yeah. I mean, even though I'm representing district or working to represent district 30, yeah, and we don't have a huge homeless population in our district because Hard let's to be face it, in Edgemont. it, it is. You know, cities are what attract homeless people, right. not not towns and villages and you know and townships like we have. But you know, at the same time, when I'm in the Senate, I will be voting on bills that impact those, and so I will. You know, I I'm very sympathetic to the plight of the homeless, and I want to do everything I can to uh, find ways to help them you know, stimulate the economy. Let's get people back to work and off the streets. You know, it's not like people want to be out there um, in the homeless situation they're in. You know, they want to be working. They want jobs and let's, let's get them back to work. Well, that's kind of about the time on all of these topics. I, we let every candidate do a bit of a closing statement and then we'll wrap up, man. All right. Well, my closing statement is simple. Um, you know, I have, several pledges that I, I just kind of want to go through them. Uh, my pledges to the voters of District 30, if I'm elected, I will work to reduce government spending and return power to the people. I will fight to honor the promises we've made to our veterans. I'll work hard for the ranchers, the farmers, and others who work so hard for us. I'll stand up for the rights of all South Dakotans, and not just those who look, think, or pray like me. I'll defend our rights to own and possess firearms and ammunition. I will always vote to protect an individual's right to life. I'll be a strong ally and an advocate for the tourism industry. 
I'll support parental rights and parents' rights to educate their children where and how they choose. I'll protect our public resources against mismanagement and irresponsible neglect. Finally, I will always listen, and I will be there when people come to me, and I'll demonstrate that the message of liberty does not stop at any one party's bounds. Great statement. Uh, okay, he is Mr. Gideon Oaks. He is running for District 30 Senate here in South Dakota. Uh, elections coming up in November. I hope to have your opponent on as well, and so people can uh, listen to both and make the choice that they uh, think is best. And I appreciate you coming in on a Friday, man. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gideon. Oh, I should. I should also say I want to thank one more time to Elevate Rapid City. They're uh, helping us promote this thing. Uh, this is the Dakota Town Hall podcast. Uh, we will be doing all of the candidates and issues, or at least everyone that we can, before the election day. And then we'll start up again uh, for the next primary season. So thank you for listening. Give us a rating or a share or a like, and uh, we appreciate you guys uh, involving yourself into the political process. Have a good weekend.